iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo, technology, what is it all about? Today, every human on the planet, including you, consumes a credit card worth of plastic a week. And I, I don't mean, you know, they use those products. I mean, it's in your lungs. It's mm. in your blood. And the byproduct of these microplastics crush your endocrine system. And that's bad enough for adults, but it's catastrophic for kids and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a humongous problem. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. Welcome back, y'all. How's everybody doing? I'm doing swimmingly. Um, you know, it's summer. I've actually taken up swimming. Uh, we'll see how long it lasts, but that's cool. You know, you do some laps, feel totally energized, and then like two hours later, you're like, oh my God, it's nap time. I can't keep my eyes open. But anyhow try to live right we'll see how long it goes um certainly doing better than boris johnson uh who you know had quite the week but um this is not a politics show so we'll leave that to our friends at the red box podcast here we have a great lineup for you this week we'll be talking crypto pizza and the future of humanity kind of in that order so yeah we have two guests this week at the top of the show, we will be bringing on Mike Alfred, who's a former tech company founder turned investor. And for the last year or so, he'd been warning everyone who would listen about Celsius, the crypto lender, who, of course, we had on the show uh, some months back. And last month, they froze withdrawals for 1.7 million account holders and appear on the precipice of bankruptcy. So lots of people are going to lose lots of money, which is just terrible. And he also raised the red flags around BlockFi, which last week agreed to a bailout by FTX at a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of its value just a few months ago, because they too have just been completely just walloped by this crypto meltdown. So those are two of the biggest casualties, actually, of what's been going on in the market. And I brought Mike on, who um, it's worth noting is still a total believer in Bitcoin. But I brought him on to talk about just what the hell is going wrong in crypto and DeFi and the world, the whole Web3 world that was supposed to change everything and instead has seen more than $2 trillion go up in smoke. $2 trillion, big number. So Mike is great at just cutting through the BS. He explains why he first got worried about Celsius and BlockFi, what might trigger more pain at more companies and how this is a bit like the financial crisis of 2008. So he is up first, but... If crypto is not your thing, worry not. Just skip the first half hour to get to my second guest, who is Alex Garden. And I've been wanting to have Alex on the pod 
for years because he's the founder of a company called Zoom. That's Z-U-M-E. And Zoom, they were founded about eight years ago, and I came across them because they were getting a ton of press some years back because uh, they were doing something kind of off the wall and certainly very catchy, using robots to make pizza. Um, So basically, trying to make better pizzas using no humans, all robots. It was a classic Silicon Valley, like, WTF idea. However, he raised nearly half a billion dollars. Zoom became a unicorn. He was getting loads of coverage. And then in 2020, he laid off half the company, shut the pizza business down, and executed a very hard pivot into sustainable packaging. So yeah, and then the pandemic struck and he had to lay off a whole nother wave of folks. So anyway, I wanted to have him on because, uh, you know, this whole idea of the pivot here is quite romanticized that, you know, keep switching things up, changing, in some cases, just completely altering your whole product or business model, whatever it may be, till you find product market fit. But he did it and it was extremely painful. And now Zoom is doing some very cool stuff around packaging which we will talk about. And also, Alex says he hasn't really pivoted at all. So there's that. He'll explain. Anyhow, I think you'll find his knowledge and passion around the global food supply chain and particularly packaging really infectious and interesting. And it's also just really a case study in this reality of startup life where things are rarely a straight line and it's always way harder and way more unexpected than you could possibly imagine when you start out so we cover that so that he is after mike but right now let's get to the news of the week in crypto land where seemingly every day another company is going bust another protocol is collapsing millions of people losing their money total pandemonium and to help us understand it all is mike alfred in investor and professional bs caller to talk about all things crypto. Here he is. So first of all, thank you for being here. We spoke probably a month ago. We spoke about, that was when Celsius and kind of the earlier phases of all the kind of crypto meltdown were were kind of really picking up. Yeah, I think that was what, two weeks ago? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So before we get into kind of what's happening now, I wanted to, I'm going to do a little timeline here to kind of orient all of us. So if we go back beginning of April, things seem pretty fine. Like, you know, the world generally, like everybody's like, ah, things are slowing down, interest rate rises coming, etc. But it wasn't that bad. You know, Bitcoin was in the high 40,000s, Ethereum 3,500-ish. And so like, you know, cryptocurrencies had this kind of dip. Um, starting in November, and then they kind of came back up, and I was like, okay, everything's fine, fine. So on April 5th, Luna, Terra, and Luna, these two kind of stable coins, were doing really well. Luna had an all time high of $119.20. I was like, wow, amazing. May 12th, Luna falls 96% in a day. And that same day, the Terra blockchain, it's kind of sister coin stops. And you have this giant thing that was worth, you know, total $60 billion just goes poof. And I was like, Ugh, that's not good. June 13th, Celsius Network, as we discussed, froze withdrawals on 1.7 million accounts. Nobody can take any of their money out. It was announced on Sunday, the 12th. Right, June 12th. 
So yeah, I guess I guess if you're in England, it was the 13th. <laughs> and at the height, they had like something uh, like 11 or 12 billion under management, according to them. June 17th, Babel Finance freezes withdrawals as well. June 27th, Three Arrows Capital, a big crypto hedge fund, defaults on a $670 million loan. July 1st, Voyager Digital freezes withdrawals, kind of blaming Three Arrows because they said they defaulted on like half a billion dollars in crypto loans. That same day, July 1st, BlockFi agrees this deal with FTX to sell for up to, depending, $240 million, but it's about a 95% discount of the $4.6 billion they were worth last summer. That same day, Babel Finance hires Hulahan Loki, restructuring specialist, July 4th, Vald, that's how you say it, Vald D. They also, another crypto lender, they also froze withdrawals, claiming clients took out $200 million over a period of a few weeks. It was just, you know, really stressing their balance sheet, etc. So I guess my question is, well, there's a couple questions. If you list all those things out, you're like, this feels like, um, it reminds me of 2008, like where you have contagion in one place and then just the dominoes start falling. And obviously we can talk about whether this, you know, this isn't nearly as systemic, at least not yet, as the banking crisis was. But I was just wondering, like, what is your view as a kind of a skeptic of a lot of these dodgy projects that came up in the last two years or the last few years? And kind of where we should be looking next. So first off, I think you know the issue with DeFi that a lot of us identified for the last couple of years is decentralized just that, finance for those. I mean, yeah, most people decentralized know, finance, yeah. you know, abbreviated as DeFi. Yeah, and the whole concept here is to kind of unbank yourself, be able to borrow money, lend money, uh, do all kinds of different financial transactions without an intermediary, you know, without having to go to a bank, for example. The reality is that most of the use cases for those DeFi protocols were Ponzi scheme-esque in nature in that they required capital, new capital coming in to sustain itself. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were sold as these sort of high yield opportunities. People would call it yield farming. Mm -hmm. And if you look closely at what yield farming is, it's basically just uh, people that were in first farming uh, <laughs> returns from people who came yeah. in later, right? right. So right. if you start with that, concept and you move away from what the VCs are selling as like, oh, DeFi is a new way of thinking about finance for the future. And you just look at it for what it is. Then you become very skeptical when centralized companies that look a lot like banks, traditional banks mm -hmm. come to you and say, hey, look, we know the interest rate is 0% or 0.5% or 1% or whatever, but we're going to offer you 18% or 12% or 24% or whatever, whatever the interest rate is yeah, well above the market rate. Um, and we're going to do it in a sort of less risky way. And so like just at, at the outset, before you even get into the details of what happened to these companies, anybody paying attention closely and who has any background in finance would go, okay, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like you can't be doing that without taking a lot of risk. And so fundamentally what, what happened here is that DeFi itself was built on a shaky foundation. These protocols were brand new. Many of them, they were untested. You know, they're easily hacked as we've seen time after time, you know, there's been like hundreds of major hacks. Yep. And then these centralized companies thought that they could generate yields that were 10x, 20x, 30x higher, leveraging these same, you know, brittle, nascent DeFi protocols as a foundation uh, for their investing. And so, you know, it's, it's really not surprising that the whole thing started to collapse uh, upon itself. I guess the question is always like, why didn't it happen sooner? 
Mm. Um, and the reality is that bull markets, uh, you know, uh, massive amounts of liquidity in an ecosystem can sustain all kinds of levered Ponzi schemes for much longer than people uh, suspect. And we, we know that from history too, because, yeah. you know, somebody read off was going for a very long time. And do you think it's fair when we're looking at, when we kind of look back in history, you know, a year from now or two years from now or five years from now, and we look at this kind of, you know, crypto since 2008, you know, 2009, when Bitcoin kind of came to be, there's been these, it's just, it's like a, like an EKG. There's like these huge run-ups and then what they call a crypto winner. And then it comes back and then another crypto winner, you know, kind of up and down, up and down, up and down. This one, I think partly just because the nature of, you know, crypto is bigger than it has ever been or was, feels bigger and different insofar as that you have all these protocols who are all kind of investing in each other, all these projects like Three Arrows is investing in. Yeah, it's very incestuous. It's very incestuous because a lot of the protocol teams had their money with Three Arrows, a lot of the centralized exchanges loan tokens to Three Arrows and then Three Arrows turn around and use that money to invest in other stuff. Right. So you're right. Yeah. But do you think we'll come to see um, the kind of the the collapse of Terra Luna, which again was supposedly a stable coin, was supposed to be like, if you're going to invest in crypto, this is safe as houses, you know, because it's supposed to be, you know, it's the clues in the name, it's stable, it's pegged to the dollar, etc. $60 billion poof goes away, and then you start to have these cascading effects. Do you think we'll come to look at that as like, maybe the Bear Stearns moment for crypto this time or the Lehman Brothers moment where it was like, you know, the kind of classic, oh shit moment of like, oh man, this is going to be very bad and the reverberations are going to come for a while. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly going to be one of the key moments of of this downturn, but I, but I think there's like kind of a more interesting angle to this conversation. Look, I've been very skeptical of a lot of these companies and a lot of these protocols, but the one thing that I would say is very positive is that these cycles are very tight and short mm. because the free market is sort of allowed to operate freely. Yeah. There's no central bank. There's no, there's no government entity. There's, there's nobody coming in and saying, look, we have to prevent people from losing money in Terra Luna. We have to prevent people from losing money in Celsius. And so the market clearing function in these crypto markets is actually allowed to operate. And what you see happen because the world's getting faster and faster, right? Everything's yeah. run by AI, by machines. Like you see that in traditional markets too, like high frequency trading and algorithms are running most of the trading that happens in equity markets, for example. But because you have this overlay of the Fed put, right, where you have the central bank basically saying, we're not going to allow asset prices go down too much because we don't want our politicians, our handlers essentially to be out of office. You know, we're going to prevent bad things from happening. And so all that does is sort of kick the can down the road repeatedly, mm -hmm. as we've seen even before the financial crisis. But since then, we've sort of just blown bigger and bigger bubbles in different parts of uh, financial markets globally. Crypto, that doesn't happen. And so you can complain all you want. And I do about the lack of regulation or complain about you know the amount of uh, Ponzi schemers and just scammers broadly that operate in the space because they're attracted to what looks like free and cheap and easy money. But the reality is the system itself is operating just fine. The people who took too much risk, they got blown up. Uh, the people that acted more conservatively are still here. And the projects that were brittle and shouldn't survive, shouldn't survive. And, and if there is any bailouts, it's happening because of private decentralized actors, like people like SBF, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried at FTX mm -hmm. has come in and he's just buying chunks of the crypto ecosystem because it's a free market and no one can stop him from doing it. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of the traditional finance people say, well, look, FTX is basically serving as a central bank. And I'd say... Uh, that's not really true because they're just a private 
actor. No, nobody's, they have no political mandate to save these companies. They're saving them because they have a profit motive, which in a capitalist system is what you want to see. You want to see private actors acting on free market yeah. uh, prices and you want to see uh, bad companies go out of business and you want to see bad actors you know, get wiped out. And so again, as much as I complain, as much as I've been a critic, I think the people who are piling on now and saying, look, it's all a sham, it's all, it's all terrible and everyone's going to lose their money. I think that's just as wrong as the people six or nine months ago saying DeFi is the most amazing thing that ever happened and you should put all your, all your money into it. I think there's some nuance here. Yeah. And just for, for listeners who, who are perhaps not totally boned up on all things crypto, uh, FTX is a really interesting company. They're an exchange and they're founded by this guy, Sam Bankman. Freed and he, um, they have sailed through this in a way that others haven't, and they're going. He's going around just like bailing out slash buying BlockFi, giving loans to Voyager Digital. All these things, just kind of as you say, picking up pieces. And theoretically, if it all works, he would come out of this as kind of the crypto king or one of them. Um, he probably already is. To be yeah. to be frank, he's probably one of the top two or three people, actors in the ecosystem globally, both in terms of wealth and in terms of influence. Yeah. And the other thing that I think is interesting here is that you make the point around how this is different than, again, if you're thinking about like a typical bank run financial collapse like we had in 2008, there is no, for example, there is no federal deposit insurance. So like Celsius, for example, was kind of trying to act like a bank, put your money with us, trust us and we will give you 18 to 20 percent yield on your cryptocurrency so as you say is if if it all goes to pot there is no backstop it's like you lose and you just fall on your face but it was also really interesting and i talked to when we had alex mashinsky the celsius founder on this podcast i was like he kept talking about the kind of the romance of decentralized finance banks aren't your friends all this stuff but i was like but i'm still having to trust you mm-hmm the whole point is like decentralized finance is centralized <laughs> onto platforms. And that's sort of the whole grift of this centralized uh, crypto lending business is representing yourself both as a bank, but also as not a bank at the same time. And at the end of the day, what, what matters to me is what is being represented to retail. And, and my mm. view on this is that these companies, these sort of shadow banks were representing themselves to retail investors as if they were a bank. And so whether or not people understood that is sort of irrelevant because the marketing was very clear. And so as much as I find 3AC and some of the stuff they did to be very irresponsible, they never held themselves out to retail customers no. as a no. safe investment, right? They were operating mostly with other sophisticated investors, but go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, not at all. Not at all. So um, kind of throwing this forward and as you say, not trying to, I mean, it kind of, it's not productive to just pile on, but kind of trying to figure out where this goes from here. And in a way, it's kind of like, how long is a piece of string? But there is, uh, I was reading something the other day, there's something like 60 or 70 crypto exchanges. I don't know how many other crypto lenders are out there. Do you have a sense of, or like, you know, because you were one of the early people who was calling out Celsius being like, this thing is about to go, you know, melt down, get your money out. And some people listen to you. They're probably forever indebted to you. But is there somewhere else you're looking where you're like, "Mm, this thing over here? we should be keeping an eye on this where this is the ne- the kind of the, the warning light is going off. So just centralized exchanges that did any lending. So there will be some firms uh, that just don't make it. And my 
kind of view on this over the last few weeks that I've shared a couple of times publicly is just that it'll be the companies that have maintained trust, both with the customers and the market, but also with investors that, mm. that will manage to sort of thread the needle here because they, many of them need bailouts, but not all of them will get them. Right. Yeah. And so you heard already, right. It's sort of been publicly reported now that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX looked at Celsius and for all the reasons that I've been calling out for a while, like there's just the total lack of responsibility. Yeah. The just sort of degenerate nature in which they were sort of gambling with these customer deposits and the nature of their balance sheet, which I believe has one of the biggest holes uh, mm. of, of any of the players in the space. Even FTX doesn't want to bail them out uh, because they don't know how bad it's going to get, right? Because there's all the known liabilities, all the ways they've already lost money, but then there's all of the potential litigation and pile-on type stuff that happens afterwards. And the last thing you want to do if you're Sam Bankman-Fried is blow up your own firm trying to save some of these other firms based on decisions that have made, been made previously. So I think there'll be a few more. I, I, I think the worst of this, candidly, is sort of over. Like, mm. If Bitcoin goes to 10 or 12,000, there'll be a few more wipeouts. But the biggest kind of centralized exchanges in the US and, and then like firms offshore like Binance, they're so well capitalized and they've done so few kind of really risky things that Bitcoin could go to 10,000, 8,000. And I think Binance and Coinbase and a handful of others are sort of, they're not bulletproof, but again, they've maintained the support of the the market. Uh, their investors are not going anywhere. They haven't done the same level of risky lending as a Celsius or a BlockFi. And Celsius and BlockFi were the two that I was calling out starting last June on Twitter spaces. Mm. Every time I got a chance, I would tell people to pull their money. And everybody was like, why? I get my rewards every week. And yeah. I said, well, if you get rewards every week, but then you lose 100% of your capital, then it doesn't matter how much the rewards are. And just to demonstrate that fully right now, people are still receiving emails from Celsius every Monday. You can still open account, I feel like, I think. I yep, checked I checked after after they announced 1.7 million people, billions of dollars. You cannot take money out of here. We are hiring, restructuring people. We're doing all this stuff, but you can still open an account and put money in. The management team should have shut that down because that's just an additional litigation vector. I was like, that seems just illegal. Because <laughs> like, if you put your money and can't get it out, that's just like you're actually just donating, but not to a charity. Yeah. Yeah. And if they file bankruptcy tomorrow, you could have put your money in an hour earlier. It's fresh, clean capital and it's gone, right? It's in the mm -hmm. litigation process and the, the people doing that process don't care that you put your money in five minutes before they announced bankruptcy, right? They, they only care like where you fall legally in line. So I, I, look, a lot of people don't read the news and they don't use Twitter. And so maybe they'll make the mistake of, of putting money in there. But again, if I was the management team at Celsius, I would have shut that down earlier because right. once you shut down withdrawals, you probably shouldn't accept new deposits unless you want to get sued. Just on those uh, on Celsius and BlockFi, you're going back to, you know, a year ago, calling them out. What, why, what is it, you know, amidst all, because I think if we kind of cast our minds back to that time, those are the salad days. Everything was going swimmingly. Everything was going up, 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 up. Everybody was talking about crypto. All, it was just like, it felt like the dawn of a new age and a blah, 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 bored apes, et cetera. I'm an inherent skeptic, but that's not the reason fundamentally why hmm. I was concerned about these companies, right? I, it wasn't just BlockFi and, and Celsius, right? I was, I was worried about the valuations of publicly traded tech companies as well. I spent a lot of time on ARK Innovation Fund. I spent a lot of time talking to people about why Shopify was trading at 1700 bucks and Netflix yeah. at 700 bucks and 
Carvana, right, at three, four hundred bucks. Like those are all shorts, uh, just on valuation alone. But any good short seller will tell you you get blown up uh, shorting on valuation alone. You have to have a catalyst. But I was confident that like at some point these valuations were out of control because you had a team at BlockFi that was basically a bunch of kids who had never done anything quite like this before. And they're running a very sophisticated sort of capital markets and risk book without any experience on their team or, or necessarily on their board to help them with that. So that was like a huge red flag. And just so just so people know, BlockFi is basically you give whatever, 10,000 of Bitcoin and they're like, look, we're going to take this. We're going to give you deposit with us and we'll give you 10, 20, 30 percent, whatever the promise was. Pay out like, you know, like interest from a bank account. But mm-hmm. what they were doing with the behind the scenes was presumably lending it to a bunch of other decentralized, risky th- projects that may or may not just blow up. And that's the key to the misrepresentation, right? It was never explicitly kind of disclosed what these firms were doing. Mm, and so again, yeah. you have a team with no capital markets or risk experience taking in billions of dollars of outside capital and essentially running an unregulated hedge fund on the back end while representing themselves as sort of a regulated bank on the front end. And so again, the disconnect of interest rates are at 1%, but some people who don't seem particularly sophisticated, again, Celsius is the same thing. Like Alex Mashinsky had no background. He was yeah. a telecom CEO. He was fired as the CEO of Novotel Wireless and I think it was 2014, right? Like, and then he pops up a few years later as the head of this crypto bank. I wouldn't have been so concerned if it was at least somebody who maybe worked at Goldman Sachs or something before, right? Like as much as some people don't like Goldman Sachs, at least if somebody ran a risk book there, there's a chance they know how to model and manage uh, risks like this. So then the thing that really caught my attention was in the spring of last year, 2021, when all of a sudden it became clear that BlockFi had put a huge chunk of the customer deposits into this grayscale Bitcoin trust, this GBTC fund, which is the largest Mm. closed in Bitcoin fund. And the way the trade worked is that they would essentially buy the trust at the NAV, the net asset value. So if you bought it directly from the company grayscale, you could buy the trust at the price of the underlying Bitcoin. So you're basically getting the Bitcoin at cost Mm -hmm. uh, inside of this trust. But then because there weren't that many vehicles that the public investors could use to access Bitcoin easily, particularly in the US, like if you had a retirement account or an IRA or whatever, people piled into this GBTC product at premiums up to 40, 50%. And so for the entire life of this fund up until last spring, the product traded at a premium to NAV. So all you had to do as an institutional investor was you could put in 10 million bucks, 100 million bucks, whatever. You'd buy it at NAV, you wait six months, and then your, your your shares are unlocked and you could sell them at market and just capture that premium. It looked like a it looked like a risk-free trade because the yeah. product, again, over five or six years never traded at a discount. But of course, magically, whenever somebody sees free money lying on the ground in, in financial markets and they reach down to pick it up, it vanishes. And so they had <laughs> put most of the customer money into this trade. Again, without proper risk frameworks, without a proper understanding of the, the factors that could drive this trust to no longer trade at a premium. And then, of course, during the drawdown in the spring of last year, it flipped to a negative suddenly. Mm-hmm. And so now all of a sudden you had hundreds of millions of dollars of BlockFi depositor money trapped in a trade that looked like a f- free money that had gone negative. And so if customers actually wanted to get their money back, the only way that the company could have gotten the money back for them is to sell GBTC at a discount, take the loss, but then they wouldn't have had all of the funds that the customers thought that they had deposited with the company because the so-called yield, 6%, 10%, 8%, whatever, 
was predicated on a trade that didn't work and a massive trade that didn't work. And so that started to lead many of us to start looking more deeply at what what exact what else is BlockFi doing? What else right. is Celsius doing? And that's when we started to discover all of these DeFi trades. Celsius even started a, a mining business. Mining is in the toilet right now. Most of the publicly traded miners are down 90 plus percent off their peaks. And they put, I think, you know, public investor money into depositor money into a, a liquid mining business that is probably worth uh, pennies on the dollar from of the capital they put in. So even if they wanted to sell it right now, that capital is not coming back. And so you look, it didn't take long as you start to peel away the onion on what these companies were doing in the back end to realize these were very poorly run mm. uh, risk machines that took on way more risk than they understood with people that were not qualified to do it. And then on the front end, they were presenting themselves as a, as a bank and effectively were running a shadow bank. So in, in so many different ways, it was sort of immoral, if not illegal. And it was not a surprise that it, that it blew up. Yeah. And I don't know if you have a sense of this. I certainly don't. But when you look at the value destruction between, say, the peak in November and now, it's, you know, two plus trillion dollars of total crypto value has disappeared. That sounds like a big number. But I'm wondering if you have any sense from where you sit of like how widespread or how systemic this is especially when we go back to this idea that you know there's no federal deposit insurance like if your bank goes bust your savings are secure to a certain level here is like if celsius goes bust you are out of luck you lose everything and just when you talk about again that idea of two trillion dollars that sounds like a big scary number but i just don't know what that means <laughs> for the system, for people, for the economy. But I don't know if you have any sense of that. I know it's kind of a big kind of economic question, but I don't know if you have any sense of that. Look, it's a it's a single digit, like a low single digit percentage of consumer wealth. And a lot of that was held by funds, right? So there's a lot of sort of use quotations here for professional, but professionally run uh, <laughs> crypto funds. And so the, those LPs are sometimes other institutions or sometimes very wealthy individuals. I think the impact for the average consumer is quite small. Certainly, if you're the one guy who put $3 million, your entire net worth of your family's money into Celsius or BlockFi, you're, you're, you're not happy, right? Or, or Babel or, or CoinFlex or any of these other yeah. platforms. But I think in terms of like the systemic risk to the broader economy, I think is quite, quite limited. And, you know, it would be much worse if like real estate prices were down even 10% off their peak prices, that's going to be more painful yeah, to yeah. the average uh, person than, than anything that happens in, in crypto. And I do expect that to happen, right? I, yeah, I think for sure. that crypto is sort of, because it's a free market, any liquidity crisis that sort of happens globally will show up in crypto market pricing earlier. And you may actually see a recovery in the best crypto assets sooner than you see them in these other markets because they're so highly manipulated by government forces, right? Like, in a sense, real estate in the U.S. was manipulated higher by interest rates, right? And so the availability of capital. Same in the U.K. Yeah, yeah and then you're seeing it in Canada and U.K. and, and other places, right? Real estate prices have gone uh, so high, they're, they're basically completely disconnected from fundamental factors like like rents, right? Like incomes, like they've completely decoupled. I mean, I think just the math and the science of it says they'll have to recouple at some oh, point, yeah. but for yeah. now, they, they seem quite disconnected. And so I think that's that's something to be more concerned about than like what happened with crypto. Like this is a free market 
Like nobody was deluded into thinking the government's in control of this. Uh, it can break at any time. And in this case, a lot of things did break in the ecosystem, but the plumbing of it is still working. You know, Bitcoin still works every 10 minutes. There's a new block. If you want to store your wealth uh, on it without using any intermediary, you can use a hardware wallet and you can store it in a safety deposit box and, yeah. and no one can take it away from you. So the, those things still remain true, even as the kind of quoted price goes up and down and there's a lot of volatility. I mean, let, let's just call it what it is. I mean, the, the ARC fund was down 60%, right? Kathy Wood's yeah. uh, innovation fund was down 60% at one point. This year, you know, Netflix, Carvana, Facebook, all these companies are down 30, 40, 50, 60%. So it's not just crypto. It's pretty much anything that depends on things happening far in the future to uh, assign value in the present. Yeah. Anything that has a, a value that could be a lot higher or lower uh, with a wide dispersion of future outcomes um, is down a lot. Whereas the things that are up, like the things in my portfolio that are up are really, really boring. Pharmaceuticals and grocery and consumer staples and you know energy's done pretty well this year although it's getting absolutely clobbered in the last couple of weeks um, so it's just been a tricky market broadly i don't i don't think that what's happened in crypto is particularly notable uh when we look back like five or ten years from now i don't think it's going to matter that much the people remember terra luna but it but it probably won't be something that comes up very often voiceover describes what's happening on your iphone screen voiceover on settings so you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. So that was Mike. Hope you guys enjoyed that, found it edifying. And now, here is my conversation with Alex Garden, founder of Zoom. Enjoy. Thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm very excited to have you on because I have followed your company for many moons. All the way back. So I've been back in the Bay Area now five and a half years or so. And when I started this podcast in the first like six months, I was like, I want to do something on robots. 
<laughs> and I was like, I'm going to do a deep dive on robots and do like a kind of a narrative kind of deep dive into all the cool things happening in robotics. And I was like, wait a minute. There's this company that's using robots to make pizza. Yeah. And I was like, that's amazing. And we didn't end up speaking because I ended up going in 83 different directions and talking to lots of other robotic companies. But that's kind of where at least this company started out. So I'd love to if you just get a kind of take us back and then take us up to the present day, because obviously what you're doing now is very different, but also impactful in a completely different way in a place that is kind of glorifies the pivot. This is a pivot. Well, you know, I've hotly debated this topic with people, but you may be surprised uh, <laughs> that it was not. Uh, but let me see if I can okay. add some, some uh, dimension to that. So, yeah. you know, pr- prior, to, uh, prior to this chapter of my life, I spent almost 30 years as an engineer first and then running public and private tech companies around the world. And when I left my last posting, this is my son right here. Um, yeah. And when I left my last posting, on the advice of, of a friend, I, I decided to take some time to look at the world, not through the lens of my PL, but through the lens of my son's generation. And I was just curious. Yeah. I had the time and I wanted to, um, to really kind of form a point of view on the world that he and his generation would grow up in around the world. And uh, I'm lucky to have a background in science and engineering. So the, the research I did was, was quantitative and, and qualitative. Yeah. And um, as I began to look past the hyperbole and, and into the math of how things really were going in the world, frankly, it was appalling to learn that things were considerably worse than the hyperbole. Yeah. And frankly, I hold myself accountable for not looking at them sooner. And, and as I collected problems, uh, they began to bucket uh, for me into four things which I think each individually represent a singularity level possibility for his generation. And those are the issues around food security, water security, uh, climate security, and then ultimately geopolitical security, Yep. which is the inevitable consequence of unevenly distributing wealth and surplus. Yes. And to my surprise, as a technologist, the highest point of leverage in all four of those areas was the global food supply chain. Mm-hmm. And I will just say as an aside, before I continue the story, you know, this has been about eight years in the making now. And eight years ago, when we started this conversation, honestly, when I talked to people about these issues and how important they were going to become, people looked at me like I had a horn growing out of my head. Mm. And I'm disappointed to call to your attention the fact that today, now, all four of those issues are an alarm bell, a red alert. I mean, yeah. This year alone, as many as 400 million people, if we just if we look at the isolated consequence of grain exports from the Ukraine, as many as 400 million yeah. humans won't have the basic calories they need to survive this year. And unfortunately, the majority of that impact will fall on Northern Africa. And if you consider the mass migration consequence of that food shortage and the geopolitical impact that will have on Western Europe and mm-hmm. frankly, the rise in right-wing nationalism, you can start to see how these things are connected and how important they are. So, uh, and that's just one element that doesn't talk about diesel fuel or potash or, or anything else. So, so these things are, are urgent issues. And um, I decided that rather than taking the rest of my career, my victory lap, if you will, as a financial lap, I would devote the rest of my life to service and to try to take the things I learned about making a difference on, on the global stage and to try and do that in a way that would create a safer future for the people that I care about. So Zoom was founded as a company whose purpose was to advance the state of the art of technologies in and around the global food supply chain yep. to try and solve the problems, solve 
the problems in one or more of those problem areas in my lifetime. And when people tell me that that's, you know, incredibly ambitious to the you know, bordering on the point of being foolish, I say, well, you know, it's less ambitious than colonizing Mars. And the last time I checked that was fully funded. So, you know, the thing <laughs> is, I think we live in a, I think we live in a time now where the grand ambitions of our world are, are no longer the grand ambitions of government. I think they're now mm -hmm. the grand ambitions of industry. And I think there's multiple reasons why that's changed in the last 15 to 20 years. So the punchline here is that we created this problem and therefore it is statistically possible that we can solve it. Yeah. Now, ha having been in the business world for a long time, one of the lessons I've learned is that if you show up with unproven enterprise technology and the conceit of saying, you know, uh, good news, I'm here from the technology industry and I'm here to solve your problems. <laughs> That's not a very effective way to... Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So so, so what we did instead is we started a reference customer. Uh, yeah. And if and this may be hard to remember, but think back eight years, there was no food delivery other than pizza and you know Indian food yes. and Thai food and Chinese food. Uh, the whole modern concept of delivery that we've become uh, used to didn't really exist outside of a few markets, maybe emerging markets in China at the time. So uh, the most competitive space then was pizza. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, let, let's start a reference customer in the pizza delivery space. And let's just go and figure out what its problems are. Let's operate a food company and figure out what its problems are. Yeah. And along the way, uh, if we have success, we will identify and develop advanced technologies, which can make a difference. Now, if you want to oversimplify the global systemic food industry, it is largely broken into civic level problems and national level problems. And for practical reasons, we started at the civic level because it's less expensive, to be honest. So initially, we looked at wage equality uh, and availability of labor. That led us to flexible robotics and kitchens, and then led us to, obviously, advanced material handling solutions and appliance manufacturing and predictive algorithms to balance supply and demand to reduce waste and reverse logistics and advanced packaging solutions. And then we began to attract the attention of investors and our resource pool increased and we began to look at national solutions and mm. macro food production and the preparation of raw ingredients while they're being distributed. And to be honest with you, dozens of other major technology areas. And we were able to do that because along the way, we convinced investors that this was a huge problem area mm. and that if we didn't invest in this problem area, the consequences of it would catch up to us in a reasonable time frame. And we were right. And, you know, frankly, now, if you look, we've got uh, guys like Mark Lurie uh, mm -hmm. and Wonder who are deep diving into reverse logistics, which is a field that we pioneered. We have dozens, I've lost count now, of the number of technology startups that are building advanced appliance solutions in food automation yeah. and, and other areas. And, and we've, you know, huge advances in vertical farming. And, uh, and it's not well known, but Zoom was making what I think to be some pretty important discoveries in that space. And packaging. And packaging is, is, is going to surprise you. So if you remember the beginning of the story, the purpose was yeah. to save the world with food. Uh -huh. And if, if you told us in the beginning that this is how we would do it, I would have had a hard time believing that. But let me explain what I mean. So, so Zoom today operates in the middle of a two-sided marketplace. And on the one side, we provide services to the largest brands in the world and the mid-market and SMB, yeah. and now in 26 countries around the world and, and counting. But let's just talk about the enterprise customers for a second. So these are some of the largest CPG, uh, FMCG, uh, retail and food brands in the world, literally. And mm -hmm. um, for these brands, we do virtually everything that they need to start with something they use today that's uh, EPS foam or plastic, and to engineer price and performance parity replacements 
that are available at massive scale with supply chain security. And that's a lot. It's everything from the opportunity analysis to the tool and product design, chemistry, material science, supply chain solutions, uh, all the testing, certification, quality, lab, factory trials, rapid prototyping. I mean, a lot. And what are you replacing it with that plastic and foam? Give me a minute because I'm getting there. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's all great. But the problem with that business is that when you succeed, the uh, CEO of those companies will turn and say to you that, okay, fantastic. I need a billion a year of those and I can't take any risk and I can't pay more. So how are you going to do that? Right, right. right. And, and that leads me to the other side of our business where we, we design, manufacture and sell the most advanced uh, fiber thermoforming injection molding equipment in the world and whole factory level solutions around that. And these are massive $100 million factories that we sell to the largest industrial companies in the world. So these are pulp and paper companies, agricultural companies, pure financial industrial investors, et cetera. So you have designed the factory kind of gear effectively, the stuff that makes the stuff? Yeah, not just the gear, but if you take a page out of the semiconductor industry, you know how they yeah. design the chip generation and then they design the fab that makes the chip and they call it copy exact. You know, they just stamp out fabs to increase yeah. production. So this is the approach we took in packaging. So we created a factory unit that, now, now I'll answer your question, that takes in all around the world, various types of global agricultural waste and fire and other fibers. And keep in mind, the disposal of those fibers, the, the unmanaged disposal of agricultural waste is the single largest source of black hole emissions in the world, period. Hmm. So it takes those global fibers, converts it into products which directly replace single-use plastics. So in a way, it's sequestering carbon emissions into not hydrocarbons at a massive global scale. And we're talking about categories of products like protein trays and coffee lids and scoops and things that represent literally hundreds of millions or actually in many cases, billions and billions of units a year of, of uh, production. And uh, these factories that I'm referring to, our smallest factory starts at converting 100 tons of material a day. Wow. <laughs> so it gives you a sense. And even that's a drop yeah. in the ocean, actually. So it, yeah, it yeah. starts to give you a sense of, of what the scale is like. So so basically, we've taken what was existing technology in the fiber thermoforming industry, and we've really evolved it to something that's quite a bit farther along than what was otherwise the state of the art. We've made it massive at a scale that people have never seen before. And then to create a purpose for it to exist at scale, we've engineered these really advanced product solutions for these giant brands. And the nature of our relationships on both sides of this marketplace entitle us to assign volume from brands to these factories. And when we do, the factories become the seller to the brands and Zoom collects royalties for having acted as the proctor in this relationship. So, so one way of thinking about it is it's a massive platform like an Xbox, right? Or like a cloud platform. It's a massive platform that converts ag waste into not plastic. Right. And to put it crudely, what you're selling is, is, at its heart, you're selling kind of a system or a factory or factories. That's right. Attached to an advanced R&D uh, apparatus and a global yeah. sales force and offtake agreements and financing and all of the constituent parts you need, including on ongoing improvements in chemistry and material science and supply right. chain. So that it makes the individual four wall EBITDA performance of the factory asset really, really high. And, and I'll just put a bow on this for you. Okay. Now, because you, you, you know, you, you started it. Right, with the pivot. <laughs> but let me, let me put a bow on this for you. Yeah. If you look at what we do today, yes. it involves flexible robotics and in industrial manufacturing settings, advanced material handling capabilities, global manufacturing, uh, smart appliances, and huge diverse sensor packages, predictive 
algorithms all over the place, like all very, yeah. various types, sophisticated logistics and planning systems, and global partnerships with some of the biggest companies in the world, ADB mm. and Solanus. Uh, and we're operating all over the planet. Like, you know, we have industrial assets that are going in in Europe, uh, assets that are already operating, multiple assets that are already operating in Europe and the US. And do you build those or do you contract for those to be built? You you Zoom? Okay, so, so point is, this whole system exists, all right? So now yeah. let's talk about how we managed to make this happen because we're actually still a relatively small company. We have just over, just about 200 people working in the business worldwide today. So part of the challenge here, it's not just as, as if this wasn't enough. It's not just creating the advanced products and it's not just yeah. creating the industrial solutions. If you think about this in the macro, single-use plastics, okay? So the packaging industry is about a trillion dollars a year and it grows at about 6% a year. It's, it's actually yep. pretty healthy growth. And of that, about 320 to 340 billion of that is single-use consumer plastic packaging, which is atrocious if, if you really wrap your brain around it. So we've produced more plastic, humans have, in the last 10 years than we did in the last 100 years. Yeah. And the UN says that by 2050, there'll be more plastic than fish in the ocean. And today, every human on the planet, including you, consumes a credit card worth of plastic a week. And I, I don't mean you know they use those products. I mean, it's in your lungs. It's mm. in your blood and the byproduct of these microplastics crush your endocrine system. And that's bad enough for adults, but it's catastrophic for kids and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a humongous problem. Yeah. And everyone realizes it now. In fact, just two days ago, India dropped the hammer on their plastic ban. Canada's got one coming. The U.S. has got expanding restrictions on the use mm. of plastic, et cetera. Here's the issue. Virtually everything in our consumptive lifestyle requires packaging. And that packaging yep. is ubiquitously plastic. And since we all know now we can't use that anymore, there's this massive economics problem, which is 75 years of capitalized industry to produce packaging to support a certain level of consumption that needs to be replaced in the next 10. And in the entire history of human capitalism, outside of maybe World War II, there's no mm. demonstrated model that justifies the, the deployment of that much capital. And, and yet at the same time, we have trillions of dollars of ESG capital that's in the capital markets looking for a place to deploy. So the pieces are on the chessboard, but no one's managed to arrange them. So what we did at yep. Zoom is we created, like I said, this technical framework and a partnership model that made it possible, that justified the deployment of all of this ESG capital to create an apparatus to replace plastic in a short period of time, right? So it's as much an engineering problem as it was an economics problem to solve. So... At what point, you going back to over this eight year kind of arc mm -hmm. and going back to when I came into the story, although I didn't come into the story, but when I first came upon you and I was like, cool, pizza making robots, you're driving around <laughs> the Bay Area making pizzas. The truth is, if I knew then, like how much of a catnip treat that would have been. Total catnip. A, no, and, Total and honestly, and, and then, you know, mea culpa, <laughs> I, mea culpa, right? I've spent my entire life in either running public P&Ls or bootstrapping yeah. my own companies, right? Yeah. And and I didn't realize, and I should have, and, and it's my mistake, that robots making pizza w was effectively the perfect Great. storm for a yeah, venture capital-backed totally. company. And if I had known that, I pro probably would have kept a much lower profile because we've spent the last seven years explaining <laughs> that we're not the robot pizza company. Totally. So when you start going back to the original conceit, which is like, okay, the, the food system is the problem here and you know we've spent a lot of time on this podcast mm -hmm. talking to cultivated meat companies we had a company on a few months ago called kana 
I don't know if you know them, but they've created a beverage printer to deal with the kind of packaging problem on the drinks industry, which is massive. Um, so there's lots of companies, as you say, coming at this problem from different angles. How did you end up here when, you know, going back, I understand you didn't want to be a robot pizza company, but yeah. of all of, of looking at that original problem, how'd you end up like packaging is the thing? And we're going to create a whole new system. Yeah. So let me address one thing you said first, and then I'll talk about the packaging journey. So, mm. you know, you, you, you mentioned that the food system is the problem. Uh, that's, mm. I don't agree with that. Um, the food system in the seventies, we, you know, with two, two and a half billion people in the world, uh, well-respected uh, scientists and uh, future thinkers said that we would never be able to feed the population if it doubled yeah, and that the world would be facing massive starvation and famine and, and war and strife. Guess what? That didn't happen, right? I mean, we were, we're at seven and a half billion people and counting and somehow we're still this year, actually, sadly, it may be different, but up to this point, mm. we have managed to feed them. And, and how did we do that? Well, you know, technology and innovation. And I will say this, uh, for all of the consequences of the food system, it is remarkable. It is miraculous. And here's the issue with it, though. There is an issue. And it's not just food. Actually, we're seeing this overall in, in supply chain logistics globally. What we've created is a very efficient system, but it's not a very resilient system, right? We've, we've engineered out the resiliency by making it more and more efficient. The supply chains have gotten longer and inventories have gotten shorter and predictions gotten yeah. better. The, the thing is when there's a black swan event or, or there's three black swan events, the wheels come off the bus pretty quickly, right? So, so we have a miraculously good food system that is not resilient, and that yep. lack of resiliency is now causing a cascade failure. All right. So yep. calling it good or bad, I know that makes for great PR, but I don't agree with that statement. Yeah. Now let's talk about packaging. When we started delivering pizza, we were making this marvelous, unstabilized Neapolitan pizza with the highest quality ingredients. And the, the, I mean, remember the point was, let's see if we can do it better. So I didn't yeah, to yeah, like yeah. repeat yeah. what was out there. What we discovered is you take that pizza and you put it in a box and within five minutes, it's declined in quality to the point where I didn't think it was good enough to serve to somebody. And I'm a physics guy. So I was like, I'm really curious about why that happens. So we, because it gets like soggy or the heat kind of makes it the dough less kind of crunchy and now you see that answer is the reason why we still have corrugated pizza boxes so so let me let me let me go one level deeper okay okay what happens we pay a bunch of money to put heat energy into this moist product and then we put it mm -hmm. in a confined space and it begins to cool and as yep. it cools the moisture is released and the ambient moisture content in the box goes up cool now as the pizza cools uh, it begins to reabsorb the moisture and it yeah you're correct it gets soggy and something else happens now, you could just vent the moisture, but then the pizza gets too dry. Yep. Now, when you cut the pizza, the grease runs down through the cut. And because it's sitting on a flat box, it wicks out across the bottom. And again, as the pizza yep. cools, that grease is reabsorbed into the crust and it gets soggy. Okay. Yeah. Now, shocker, if you put that pizza on a baking sheet in an oven and you cool it at the same rate, hmm. none of those things happen. Hmm. So isn't that interesting? So I thought, well, what if we engineer a shape that manages the grease? so that it doesn't touch the crust? And what if we engineer a shape that mm. keeps the pizza elevated so that the moisture can circulate around the crust? And what if we change the shape of the box so that there's a different temperate zone over the crust than there is over the toppings? And what if we engineer how much moisture that the package can absorb mm. so it's not vented, but it also doesn't build up inside the container? And what if we make it stackable so you can carry five of them with one hand without them falling apart? Yep. And what if we set it up 
so that it's like a cloche. And when you stack it on the table, it creates a basically a, a thermal insulation between the table and the box. So it stays warm longer. And have you ever tried to put a pizza box in the garbage? Why don't you make it so you could fold it up and put it in the garbage? And while we're on that subject, <laughs> why put it in the garbage at all? Why not make it compostable? I mean, these things seem pretty obvious when you start doing it. So anyway, we yeah. came up with this package for our own purposes because we couldn't find anything. Well, we looked, honestly, I'd rather just buy it. Yeah. And we couldn't find anything in the world that was this good. So we designed it. And um, everyone said, well, that shape is so complicated. You have to make that out of plastic. And I said, well, that's over my dead body. I mean, that's kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we went to China and we found a contract manufacturer there who was willing to attempt to make this because it was the largest molded fiber product anyone had ever attempted to make before. And it had these really complex shapes. And we succeeded. And it was $2 a box, <laughs> which is absurd, right? Right. Uh, but we, we worked really hard. and We value engineered it down to under a dollar, but it was still way too expensive. And I'm an engineer, so I got really curious about that. And I said, well, why is it so expensive? It's, it's not the material. I mean, that's a lot, but that's not the reason. It's not the labor. Mm. What's the reason? And the reason is because at that time, state-of-the-art in fiber thermoforming had two limitations. One was that the platens, right, that pressed the product were not very big. Yeah. Because they, their size was a function of what was made elsewhere in the market. And the second one is that they were serial. So they did one thing and then the next and then the next. Mm. And that meant that if you had a complex shape and you had to press for a long time, you block the whole machine and a slow machine means an expensive part. Okay. Yeah. Now, I looked at these machines. I said, like, are those a monolith or are those a collection of subcomponents? And it, and it turns out it was the latter. And I said, okay, well, how much is one of those presses? And it wasn't very expensive. So I did, I remember building it. I built a simple spreadsheet and I said, well, if you quadrupled the price of this component and everything else remained the same, and you looked at the marginal economic, mm -hmm. uh, marginal increase in economics, is that a good deal? And it was absurdly more profitable. I said, huh? Mm. Well, if you made this press five times or 10 times bigger than it is today, and you, even if you assumed a linear increase in price, which clearly would not be the case, yep. what does that do? And it turns out it was absurdly profitable. And I thought, gosh, why hasn't anyone done this? And the answer is because molded fiber is incredibly delicate when it's being produced. And if you wanted to manipulate it quickly amongst these machines in a parallel fashion, you'd have to be an absolute expert in flexible robotics and advanced material handling. And I said, hey, you know something? I know a company who knows how to do that. Right, right, right. That's right. us. And so when you say molded fiber... That's basically the organic mush that all of this stuff. You know, the actual word for it is slurry, which is about the same as organic mush. Yeah. So, so basically, if you, if you think about any kind of uh, plant, uh, mm -hmm. and this is, this is true in the 99th percentile, think about any kind of plant, it's fibrous material. Yeah. Okay. And if you prepare it correctly, basically in these massive steam boilers, and then again, oversimplifying, but just think about it that way. You take the biomass, you clean it, you put it in these massive steam boilers and you and you reduce it down to this sludge, this slurry. It's a, They call it pulp, okay? And it's basically the fibers and a set amount of the bonding uh, chemistry of those fibers, right? right? That is the input into our factories. And yep. because we operate globally and we do a lot of work to shorten our inbound and outbound supply chains, it's everything from switchgrass to sorghum, scanthus, bamboo, bagasse, uh, virtually every grade of hardwood and softwood, corn, soy, wheat straw, and like all sorts of other crazy yep. things. The other day we ran um, pelletized fiber made from grass clippings using a mechanical process from a company in Germany. So, you know, just really exotic stuff. Yeah. And we've become uh, a global leader in understanding the performance characteristics of fibers and the relationships between them and those relationships to chemistries and process controls. And so we, we take 
whatever we can get locally, we prefer ag waste because yep. it's a great form of carbon sequestration. We blend it in intelligent ways and we fill any performance gaps with chemistry packages. And we engineer these things to the highest standards of compostability, home compostability. And we match those to the needs of these very large brands. And then we, and then we just control this whole system that makes all of these things. So how many facilities are out in the world dotted around or being built or kind of what's the scale of kind of where you guys have got to? Yeah, so we have three that are operational right now in the world. We have uh, three more that are under construction and we have uh, three more on top of those that are in very late stages of negotiation and likely will be projects that have been uh, inked and, you know, and are underway as programs uh, this year. Right. Uh, and, and uh, you know, <laughs> they're really big projects. So uh, that may not seem like a big number to people, but that's close to a billion dollars worth of infrastructure that's already up and running or soon to be signed you know, in, along that spectrum. Right. And uh, when you think about it, each one of these facilities produces, again, depending on what it's making, right, because size and weight matter a lot, but between a billion and four billion pieces a year of material. So that's a really big number. Yeah. And. What's even more sobering is that really big number is a drop in the ocean when you consider the total volume of consumption that we have globally. What is the volume? Because I think for me, it's like listening to you talk, you're like, all right, well, so we all kind of know that plastic isn't good. Plastic's awesome, actually. It's, it's incredible. Like our, our modern way of life owes a lot to plastic. Yes. What's wrong with plastic is that the cost of producing it, the environmental cost of producing it from petrochemicals, and its end of life story because of the yeah. because because of many things which include our management of the waste stream is having a catastrophic consequence that we can't really handle anymore but plastic itself is not bad it's the consequence of plastic that's bad so do you foresee so again getting back to the kind of the volume and where you're going for initially which sounds like kind of product packaging single use type of th applications if you will well uh, I agree with the single use part, but it's more than uh, packaging. Basically, anything that can be thermoformed or injection molded, that's what we do. And so in some cases, it's things like packaging, right? And food service and CPG and grocery and processing. But it's also things like um, scoops, for example. Hmm. So if you think about the universe of things like baby food and coffees and protein powders and detergents that use these plastic scoops, these think about how over-engineered these are. These things can do hundreds of thousands of scoops before they fail. Totally. Okay? Totally. But they need to do a hundred. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've accepted because you can make the form of this with plastic, that that is the way that it should be, but it's massively over-engineered actually. So we have this great business in scoops. We're now working with three of the biggest global CPGs mm. on, I think I've lost count, probably 25 different scoops programs now across all sorts of categories of things. It's a very hard problem, actually, but we're yeah. really good at it now. So so it's not just packaging. Think about it as things that are plastic, okay? Yeah. It's funny you say that about scoops. I have boys, five and three, and they've commandeered many a scoop for the beach and just digging around in yeah. dirt, whatnot. They're kind of solidly in the kind of the toy zone now. Let me ask you something about that scoop. So you take that scoop, whatever it happened to be, to the beach and you you rock on all day along with it in the sand. It's probably still fine at the end of that. Totally fine. Isn't that make your mind explode? Like if you look at the problem that way? It doesn't. I'll say, be honest, it has not. But listening to you speak now, you're kind of like, why the hell do we need that to be made in such a durable way? That's a great question. And, and again, like I'm a really, I try to be pragmatic. I really want to go out of my way not to say, the plastic industry is bad or the petrochemical industry is bad or the food industry is bad because those things aren't true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're really good. 
It's just that the industrial approach we've taken to those things, we really can't afford to pay that price anymore. Okay, so let's engineer a better solution. Right. And it's interesting. Um, it sounds like your business, your business model is almost like a kind of a fabulous chip designer. Like where you're like, we're going to give you all, all the technology, all the plans, the whole system. You, we don't operate it, but we're going to kind of, you're kind of like a platform. Well, can I give you a different model? Yeah. You're, sure. you're on the right track, but can I give you a different model? Sure. The best way I've heard it described is it's a franchise. Mm, so right. we, we do own and operate some company stores, if you will. Like, for example, we're building a factory in Tennessee for a customer. Uh, we haven't announced it yet, but it's a really big deal. And, and everyone in America will, will touch and see and feel this product initially and then globally. And in that case, the customer wanted us to build that facility. Okay. Yeah. Right. Another deal we haven't announced, but we signed a few weeks ago for an Eastern European country uh, for a factory deal. That is, it will not be owned and operated by us. It'll be owned and operated by one of our, we call them second party partners. And we'll be involved in helping them make that a big success, but that will be owned and operated by them. So it's a mix, but the majority of our growth is in the second party category, right? Other people's factories right. that they own operating our system with support from us. So I think I think franchise is an app description. So basically, just like you said, though, we provide you know, the offtake and the operations manuals and procedures and the R&D and the products that run in them and the tooling solutions and the, and the ongoing uh, improvements to process that increase the financial yield of these things over time and make sure they remain competitive. All of this huge umbrella of technology and products and the demand that fill the factories as well. To make all of this work at scale, do you need people to care? Like the man in the street? Because like we just had this discussion about the kind of the scoops and like, I figure I think of myself as pretty conscientious, I live in the Bay Area, etc. But like, I don't think that deeply about plastic. I don't think most people think about it at all. Well, look, I mean, first of all, I want to I want to agree with you because I actually think you're right. But you may be surprised. Mm. Just yesterday, India decided to start enforcing their plastic ban. We, we do a lot of business in India. We have a headquarters in Mumbai. And I think a lot about that market. I think it's one of the most important strategic markets yeah, in the world. For sure. And for sure. you'd be surprised to learn that the majority of Indian consumers feel differently than what you said. Mm. But price remains important. So so let's let's consider this, okay? There's no way that we save the world with this solution if we're three times the price of plastic. That's just is economically right. impractical. Exactly. So price and performance parity, that's essential. Okay. But I think you'd be surprised to learn that the average person, and I think this, I think that you will find this is true for you too. I, I'm willing to bet. The average person, if they're given the opportunity to do the right thing and it doesn't require a trade-off that makes them uncomfortable, will generally do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Okay. All right. So, so here's the deal. We think that our job through this Rube Goldberg device that we have engineered, okay, <laughs> our, our job is to obfuscate the complexity of saving the world down to a choice that's as simple as choosing brand B over brand A. Yep. And I'll tell you something, like I had hair when we started this, like it has been a hell of a journey. Mm. But if, if we're successful in making it that simple, virtually every customer in the world will choose to do the right thing. And brands know that, right? So the reason that we've been able to gain traction with them is because we've convinced them that like, look, this system works. We can engineer these products that meet your needs. We can sell them to you at prices you can afford. And those prices will improve over time. And uh, we should work together on this. And and then when they put these things in front of consumers and test them, and this is something that I see a lot because we're, we're in 
a large number of markets doing scale consumer testing, you know, in the, you know, like in the millions of units of production in these markets. And, and I see the data on this. It's really simple. When, you, when, when people use the product and they're like, well, that's kind of cool. And it works. They're like, I would never go back mm. as long as I don't have to pay more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it, and getting there is really, really hard. But now that we're doing that consistently, our experience is that we really haven't come across people who are like, no, I actually prefer plastic. Like yeah, that yeah. just isn't very common. And how critical is it for the brands that are using this stuff to kind of make a virtue of it? Like, you know, fair trade or whatever. Be like, look, what you are, you buy our thing and you are making an affirmative choice that is kind of better, quote unquote, for humanity, for the world, for whatever. Yeah. Or again, does that, does that even matter? Does it, in other words, is it the most important audience, the brands who all are pledging, you know, net zero, et cetera? Well, it, it depends. It honestly depends on the brand. Mm. I mean, you consider this dynamic tension, okay? So, so if a brand is an individual, like a mid-market brand or SMB, and they have a product yep. and they adopt a sustainable package, then they have nothing but an incentive to stand on a soapbox and scream at the top of the lines, we're helping save the world, aren't we great? Right? Totally. They use that as a way to, t- to take share. But if you're a global multinational that has 10,000 products yep. and you, you know, taking anything to market at that scale is really hard. It, it takes a year or more and there's hundreds of people involved and you succeed. All right. Amazing. You can and, and probably will say we're proud of the commitment we're making to try and make the world better. But you're not going to say uh, and plastic is awful. And can you even believe it? Because you've got 9,999 more brands that are still using it. And you've got, you know, a lot of years of work in front of you to, to transition out all yeah. of that. And even if you could wave a wand, remember that there isn't enough production in the world to satisfy your needs, and that takes time. So I think you're going to see a more measured uh, approach from a communication standpoint. But where you're going to see a lot of activity from brands is that they are going to vote with their wallet. Mm. As soon as they can make the change, they will. Because at the end of the day, the, the purchasing people, the brand people, the executives, they're all mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters yeah, yeah. and sons and daughters. And they care about people and they want to do the right thing. That's universal. Uh, they just need options that aren't going to get them fired. Totally. <laughs> and so that's what and that's what we do. Over this eight years, is there a moment that kind of emerges of like, you know, you're like, yeah, we're working on this. And then all of a sudden out comes like what should be a really cool pizza box or whatever. Pick your packaging. And it's just like a pile mm-hmm. of goop. And you're like shit maybe this isn't gonna yeah. work <laughs> days that end in, days that end in why yeah. correct which Look, is every day you of the know, week. i mean yeah no it's true actually so so we we operate um a facility in, in socal uh that is is the most advanced fiber research center in the world by a long shot and um every day we have fibers from all over the world arriving often things we've never seen before there's a lot of different fibers out there you mm. know and they're from countries like far and wide companies far and wide, processes far and wide. Yeah. And our job is to understand how does that fiber perform inherently on its own with other fibers, with chemistries, with process controls. And we've built this really amazing library of understanding and knowledge there. And, and it is getting easier, but we're dealing with you know plants. All right? It's a pretty diverse mix. Yeah. So yeah, so it is really common. And, and, and by the way, that's just one dimension of complexity. Tooling is another dimension that's mm. just as complex. And then machine process controls and environmental conditions and water conditions and then product requirements. These are all these other dimensions. And, and it's a, it's a uh, n factorial combinatory problem. Like it's really, really complex. So to your, to your, your, your visually trying to conjure up. Yeah. All the time. 
But we find ways to overcome that really fast. And that's part of what I think makes Zoom special is the, is the, the fact that we have the courage to tackle these other these problems that, that most companies won't. Did you ever get close to being like, you know what, maybe I've just bitten off more than I can chew? Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, when the pandemic hit, as you know, from as, as being someone who's followed our history, you know that it has not been a straight line for our company. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, that's already been very hard. Because you guys had to do a round of layoffs or a big round of layoffs around that time. Yeah, that's right. And, and as a CEO, don't think that there isn't a minute that goes by that I don't, and I really mean this, uh, that I don't think about ways that I can improve and, mm. and think about ways that I might have avoided some of those things. And it's a, a tremendously heavy responsibility. So we had to go through that. And then the pandemic hit and, and 40% of our customers were wiped out. 40% of your customers were wiped out. Yeah, the restaurant, the global restaurant industry, of course. Think about it at the beginning of COVID. I mean, right. most restaurants carry six weeks of operating capital. So right. when the pandemic hit, wow. we, we forget now, but think back to the early days of the pandemic. No, no one knew, is this the end of civilization or is this going to be a bad three months? No one knew, Yeah, yeah. honestly. So flashback to that time, our customers are wiping out. We're, we're holding huge inventory commitments for them. This very complex, heavyweight, long supply chain, because that's what it takes to make inside out logistics. And we had this nascent, but very promising technologies and packaging. And the world is shutting down. Hotels are closed. Restaurants are closed. No one knows what makes you sick. No one knows if you will die or not. No one knows anything. And supply chains shut down. Vendors were closed. You couldn't get things. It was effectively closed for business. Yeah. And we were still recovering from, from this very difficult time that you referred to you know, companies are like people, there's an emotional healing process that you have to go through. And so we were still recovering from that. Then this other blow came down. And um, what I think people don't know about us is that, uh, and I think this is almost to a person true for everyone who works at Zoom. I mean, there are easier ways to make a living. This is a hard, it's a hard business that we're in. Uh, But we do this because we really, really, really care about making a difference for the people that we care about, right? Like we really care, like really deeply. And um, I, I remember uh, this being my own journey uh, and also, you know, deep discussions with our, our employees. I said, look, here's the bottom line. This has already been the hardest thing I've ever had to navigate as a leader. And it's going to get a lot worse, folks. Like, let me just be clear. Like, this is going to yeah. be some super dark days. And I don't know if anyone's really, I don't, I, I really don't believe like companies, companies fail. Okay. So I don't believe this is the end of my career or your career. Yeah. If we hang up our spurs, uh, it'll be a very sad day, but I think that the world will go on. The sun will rise. That's not what I want to do. I have an obligation to fight as hard as I can fight because that's just what I believe in. And I have people I care about and a difference I'm trying to make. And I don't know what the world is going to look like in the future. We may never get another shot at this. Mm-hmm. And for that reason and, and, some, and some other reasons that are more personal to me that, you know, probably beyond the scope of this conversation, I decided that this is the chair that I'm dying in. Right, And uh, I was really fortunate because uh, the very good people at this company, for their own reasons, made the same decision. And uh, in the middle of the pandemic, or at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember this, I was, I was in our plant, it was like uh, probably 11 o'clock at night. And uh, our plant manager in Camarillo, uh, his name is Brian Capella, he and I literally looked at each other and said, let's get into the mask business right now. And we went and found some tables. And this is no joke. We pushed some tables together and said, this is, the, this is Zoom's mask business right here. And uh, we started hand forming masks. And that led us to some pretty radical innovations in 3D printed tooling because we couldn't get tools anywhere. Mm. And then that led us to 
uh, massive innovations in material science, fully automated mass production line, one of the first domestic ones in the US. And um, that forced us to crash commercialize a lot of our technology. Wow. <laughs> the, fir the first thousand or so boxes that went out of those, um, I sat in a line of tables with our employees stapling the rubber bands onto them. Right. The graphics on the first boxes that went out, that I made those and stuck the labels on with a, with a cut, with a, <laughs> the laser printer. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Right, right, right. So that's, that, that was the, that's the kind of spirit. But behind the scenes with this good product that we were making, what we were figuring out led us to some pretty radical mm. breakthroughs uh, and things that other companies in the world just haven't figured out yet. And that's a pace of innovation. It's like anything, right? Once you, once you develop a habit of working that way, it doesn't like just go away yeah. when the pandemic is over, right? You keep going. So this is, this is who we are as a, as a company. But I think the thing that makes it all possible, the most important thing, we never quit because we really care. Hmm. And, uh, you know, in this world of Silicon Valley, this transience of like, it's, you know, unicorn, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's not what this is about. It started with us trying to make a difference. We've kept at it through the darkest times because we really care and we literally never give up. And yeah. you can't really market that, you know, you can't put that on a, on a logo. You can't put it on your website. Nobody believes it. You kind of have to experience it. I mean, you can, some companies do, but it's, it's bollocks as the Brits would say. <laughs> well, I, who knows, right? But, 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 the, yeah, but the, yeah, the only yeah. way you can yeah. ever really know is like, totally. watch what happens, right? Yeah. You can just observe the results. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're short on time. I'm really bummed. Um, we started late because, which is my fault, of course, because I have a bunch more questions. Well, look, I, saving the world is a team sport, period. And when I get the opportunity to talk to anybody, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or whether it's, it's on you know, a, a podcast or to an audience, it's a privilege because if I can motivate one person to think differently, because look at the impact one person can have. If I can get one person to think differently, uh, it's time well spent for me. So if I can come back and, and, and help spread that message and maybe inspire more people to start thinking about what they can do, uh, you let me know when and I'll be there. We'll definitely have you back. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Mike. I want to thank Alex for both taking the time. And these are just, you know, fascinating times in which we live. So, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed the conversations. Obviously, I did. And we'll be writing about all kinds of stuff this weekend, including, I think, we'll be doing a bit more on Alex's pizza to packaging journey in the paper. So do check that out. And we'll also be talking about the great resignation and how big tech has decided, mm, okay, if you don't want to work here, that's fine. Who cares about the war for talent? So we'll talk about that as well. Anyway, so do check that out at thetimes.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. Have a fabulous weekend, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.